Hello and welcome. You are listening to the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our hope that you will be encouraged and that your desire to follow Jesus Christ will be challenged and strengthened as you listen to this podcast. For more information on location, service times, and what to expect on your next visit, go to coastaloakschurch.org. Now, grab your Bible and study along with us as you listen. Amen. You can be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 28. Matthew, chapter 28. It's review time. The George Barna Group that does research in America to see how things are going in the life of the American church did a survey this last year asking a, a thousand Americans how they felt about church, their relationship with church, what what had happened in their church experience, and uh, quite a few interesting responses to their questions. But one of the most significant things that, that I thought came out of that recent research is this. They asked young adults, what made your faith grow? If they, if they confessed to know Christ and they said they'd grown in their Christian life, they were asked, what made your faith grow? It was on the survey. And they listed the top 10 things that young adults said or whatever uh, thing or person that helped their faith grow. And not anywhere on that top 10 was the church mentioned. I want you to think about that for a minute. Asking a thousand people, many who say they've grown in their faith, what helped you grow in your faith? And none of them, some mentioned, but none made the top 10 saying that the church made a difference in their life. Colin Smith shares four distorted pictures of the church that I think it'll be helpful to, to look at these to see how we view the church. These are distorted images. The first one is the image of a church as a gas station. You fill up your spiritual gas tank when you're running low. You hear a good sermon, it'll keep you going for the rest of the week. Some see church as a movie theater, the place that offers entertainment. You go in for an hour of escape, hopefully sitting in comfortable seats. Leave your problems at the door, and you come out smiling and feeling better than when you went in the movie theater. The third distorted image is the church is the drugstore, the place where you can fill the prescription to deal with your pain in your life. They see the church as something that's just therapeutic. The last distorted image is the church is the big box retailer, the place that offers the best products in a clean and safe environment for you and your family. Great service at a low price, all in one stop. For many people, the church has just become a producer of programs for their children and young people, the big box retailer. I'd say that's all four of those are a distorted image, but as you listen to those, how many people come to church with that perspective? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, said this, the church is the presence of God in the world. That's nothing distorted about that, folks. If you were to find the church of the living God, it's not four walls and a, and a, a, a pitched roof and a steeple or a tower. It, it's not a building. The church is the presence of God in the world. He says the church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating but helping and serving. The church meeting the needs of people. The purpose of the church basically is to carry on the work of Christ in the world. When Jesus left, and we're going to read in Matthew chapter 28, his final commission to his disciples, he left them with this responsibility to carry on his commission of proclaiming light to a dark world. Well, let's look at Matthew chapter 28. 
verse 19, as we review the challenge to make disciples. Go therefore, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We did that today, didn't we? Teaching them to obey or observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Well, let's take Matthew 28, that statement of the Great Commission, the first truth that you've seen before because we've been over this before. We started last spring with, with the, the master's plan of disciple making, and we've wrapped up this fall with the journey of the disciple. And you've seen these before, but let's look at them again. Number one, we have a mandate and that mandate is to make disciples. If you're taking notes, hopefully that'll fit in the blanks there. We have a mandate, and the mandate from Matthew chapter 28 is to make disciples. It is the only imperative in verse 19. It's the only command that Jesus gives us. He says, you are to go and make disciples. It's intentional. He doesn't say, go out and find people to fill your church up. He doesn't say, go out and find people to help you meet your church budget. He says, I want you to go and make disciples. We've defined the disciple over this uh, course of our study as a learner, a committed follower of Jesus Christ, someone who demonstrates their faith. Not just a person who has this information, who has biblical knowledge, but a person who lives it out, internalizes it, and demonstrates their faith. He says, I want you to make disciples. And look at verse 20, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded teaching them. That's a present participle. It's a continuing action, a continual process. So it's not just sit still while I instill. It is an ongoing process of growing in your faith and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We made a statement from, we took it from Bill Hull's book on disciple making. And, and, and I like this. It's in your notes there. Disciple making is an effort by leadership to provide an intentional environment with accountability on the basis of loving relationships. Everything in that definition is important. Making disciples means the leadership of the congregation, the leadership of the church has to help create an intentional environment, an intentional atmosphere where people can grow in their faith, where they can be nurtured with accountability. And then he talks about that people-to-people part, the loving relationships. We have opportunity to do that in our church, and we're committed to that We've seen that over the years you can just show up in church and, and go through the motions and sometimes people grow and sometimes they don't. Disciple making, this mandate to make disciples means we're gonna be intentional about this. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Lloyd John Ogilvy said this, there's nothing more exciting than helping a person become a Christian except helping that person into an exhilarating experience of discipleship. Think about that. I've heard all my life the most, the most joyous thing you can do is lead a person to faith in Christ. And, and God has given me the, the awesome privilege to do that through the years. And that is an exciting thing, but I want you to know something. I agree with Ogilvy that, that even more exciting is to lead that person who you led to Christ into a lifelong uh, life of discipleship and service. Not just to say, praise the Lord, you're going to heaven. But now that you've made that commitment, let's live it out in your life and I'll be a part of that. I like what Calvin Miller says. He, he says, in our churches, we have missed disciple-making. Listen to this. He says, many Christians are only Christaholics and not disciples at all. Disciples are cross-bearers. They seek Christ. Christaholics seek happiness. Disciples dare to discipline themselves 
and the demands they place on themselves leave them enjoying the happiness of their growth. Christaholics are escapists looking for a shortcut to nirvana. He says there's no automatic joy. Christ is not a happiness capsule that we take. He is the way to the Father. And the way to the Father is not a carnival ride in which we sit and do nothing while we're whisked along through various spiritual sensations. You say, Pastor, I would never think of the Christian life as a carnival ride. I would never say that I'm just addicted to being a part of the fellowship because of the happiness that it gives me. I would never do that. Step back and evaluate your life. As I read those four distorted pictures of the church, many of us come for those reasons. What's in it for me? I'm just here because it's about Jesus, and if it's about Jesus, it makes me feel good about myself, and I can get through the week. That's not discipleship. This mandate in Matthew chapter 28, go therefore make disciples. He says teaching them to obey or observe everything. It doesn't just mean teach them to observe his commands. It means teach them to have a heart of obedience. You know, if you teach a person to obey, they will obey the commands of Christ. They will be submissive. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. So first, number one, we have a mandate. And that mandate is not just to fill up our churches. It's not just to pack a pew, to build buildings, to have programs, to do stuff. The mandate is to make disciples. Number two, let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. Again, if you've been around here a while, you know these verses. Verse 11, and he, referring to Jesus himself, and he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. In other words, those are the gifted men God gives. He gave them. Number, verse 12, for the training of the saints for the work of the ministry to build up the body of Christ. Your translation may say, for the equipping or for the preparing of the saints. The Bible says God gave these gifted men to the congregation in order to build the body of Christ up, to equip them, to prepare them to do ministry. So number two, we have our, our, methodolo our methodology. Number two, our methodology is to develop the people to do the work of the ministry. We have a methodology. It is to develop the people to do the work of the ministry. It is not let's hire the pastor and he'll do the work. And let's get, get our budget big enough where we can hire an associate pastor. And somebody to work with students and somebody to do music. And let's, let's just get the budget big enough to where we can pack the staff out so the staff will run the church and do the ministry. Folks, that's the way a lot of churches operate. They do ministry by proxy. Well, we pay the salaries. They do the ministry. That's not biblical. The Bible mandate is that with this, this mandate to make disciples, God's going to give people like me, pastors and teachers, some say that is one word, pastor, teacher, to the church to prepare the church, to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. That's the methodology, developing people to do the ministry. We've said that the wrong question is, how many people do you have in your church? The right question is, what are these people like that you do have in your church? Are they growing? Are they becoming disciples? Are they becoming Christ-like? We've shared this before, Elton Trueblood, 30 years ago, speaking, writing on commitment, said this, cheap Christianity can usually pull a pretty good attendance on Sunday morning. He says it's cheap when people view themselves as spectators at a performance. Ouch. 
Did you show up today for a performance? Did you come just to be a spectator? Elton Trueblood would say that's cheap Christianity because that denies the fact that God not only saved you, but he wants you to be involved in ministry. Here's our phrase we picked up as we went through our study. Don't substitute the mechanics of ministry for the ministry itself. Can I rephrase that? Don't confuse church work for disciple making. The mechanics of the ministry, the things that have to go on week after week for the church to stay functioning, and when I say that, for the institution of the church to keep going. That's the mechanics of the ministry. Someone said it this way, we have a tendency to fall in love with the work of the Lord and not the Lord of the work. I've heard over the years, well, so-and-so will be a good addition to your church. They're a good church worker. What does that mean? It means they can serve on committees and show up and maybe teach a class and be there and supportive in attendance. It's more than that. The ministry has to do with people being involved in the ministry. Eugene Peterson says pastors of America have metamorphosed into a company of shopkeepers. And the shops they keep are our churches. And they're preoccupied with shopkeepers' concerns, how to keep the customers happy. God never intended for the pastor of this church or the staff of this church to keep you happy. Newsflash. Some of you say, well, you sure haven't. You've rent that deal there. I can't do it. I have a hard enough time keeping myself happy. I like what Peterson says. Uh, God never called me to be a shopkeeper. You know that when I graduated from seminary, the, the norm was you go to a church and you just kind of tweak what's been done before and the church will keep going. That's the way ministry was done for years and years and years. Everything's humming along. You just go in and, and do what they're doing and tweak it a little bit. We don't live in that culture anymore, folks. We live in a culture where you have to be intentional about disciple making. By the way, that gets us back to the Bible. I think we're suffering the, the consequences of church being okay and being, being something that everybody did. Now it's not an easy thing and it's not popular and now we're having to get back to the Bible, which I think is a good thing. Disciple making is a process. It's not a program, it's not a curriculum, it's developing people. That's the methodology, developing people. We have a, a three-pronged mission statement. I want us to put this mission statement up there. It's based on the great commandment where Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's the first part of our mission statement, which is to, to love God. We want you to come into a loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Then he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Second part of our mission statement is to connect with others, to love your neighbor. It's to, to be a part of a small group or a connection class or discipleship group where you're connecting with other believers. And then ultimately, number three, when he says in the Great Commission here to go and reach the world, make disciples, we want to reach our world. So there's our mission statement, to, to lead people to love God, to connect with others, and to reach our world. The arrows are there on purpose. I moved you from left to right on purpose because it shows movement. It shows that when you come to Christ, you don't just stop. You can't stand still. You ever tried to ride a bicycle without pedaling it? You get your feet up on the pedals and what happens? You fall over. Some of you, that's your Christian life. You're, you're, in the, you're on the seat of the bicycle, you grab a hold of the handlebars and you're on your way to heaven. And you fall over. 
Movement is intentional. Movement has to be there. You have to be growing. A.W. Tozer said this. He says, think about people who find themselves in religious ruts. They discover a number of things about themselves. They will find that they are getting older, but not getting any holier. Time is their enemy, not their friend. The time they trusted and looked to is, is betraying them. And they often said to themselves, the passing of time will help. As I get older, I'll get holier. It doesn't work that way, does it, folks? Say, man, I, I want to be one of those seasoned saints who's been around the church for years and years and years. Just being here doesn't automatically make you holier. You don't automatically grow just because you've been here. There has to be an intentional process to move you. It's like the guy that wrote on his resume, he had 40 years experience. But you started looking at where he's been and he just had one year's experience 40 times. He left that job and left that job and left that job. That describes many of us in our Christian life. You get about that far and you stop because it gets difficult or because life happens or you lose, you lose focus. We've developed core lessons, lessons on assurance, lessons on connecting, lessons on reaching, and we're taking every new person that comes into this congregation through those studies. We want to be intentional about it, which leads me to my last point. Look with me at Matthew chapter 16. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, some translations, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it number three we have a model and that is multiplication that is discipleship remember we've looked at the life of Jesus and we saw that initially he said to his disciples come and see and they observed and then once he saw said come and see he said come and follow me and they got involved in ministry and then he said come and be with me and it got more intense for those last months of his life then he said come and remain with me the model there is to, for Jesus to multiply his ministry in the life of those disciples. It's interesting, he says, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I've heard, I've heard taking up your cross is a lot of things. Some people say the cross I have to bear is my, my family, my job. One of the guys met me after church and, this morning and, and his name is Cross. He said all his life he was joke, people joked with him. He said, you're our cross to bear. It's not what it's about, folks. To take up a cross is to, to submit to the Lordship of Christ. If you will look at the, the gospel narratives of Jesus going to Golgotha as he carried his cross with those other criminals, here's what they were saying. 
to take up your cross and be paraded with the, through the streets was to say, we surrender to the authority of Rome. And Rome knew that, and that's why they implemented that as the death penalty, because they knew as they walked people to the, to the, to the crucifixion, to their place of execution, they were humbled in submission to Rome, and those Roman soldiers could boast and with their chest puffed out, saying, look at this one. This one's under our authority, and it, he's showing it. So if Christ carried his cross in submission to the Roman authorities, as all those other who were executed were. By the way, those others who were executed deserved it. Jesus didn't. The Bible says Jesus laid down his life for us. It wasn't taken from him. But that picture of going to execution, that's what it means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul shares a little bit of a, of a um, testimony as he's trying to encourage Timothy in his walk in the faith. And, and he gives us his picture of how discipleship plays out. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verse 2. He says to Timothy, What you have heard from me, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you see the progression? Paul came to know Christ. Paul led Timothy in his relationship, discipled him. Timothy is to lead other faithful men who will lead other faithful men who will lead other faithful men who will lead other faithful men. That's why, that's why we're here, because somebody took the mandate that model here is multiplication, number three. Our model is multiplication. Not just, I'm going to train one, but I'm going to train one to train one who'll train one to train one. Do you see it? Disciple is an apprentice, somebody who signs up for this disciple-making process. In a few weeks, we're going to ask you to sign up. We've started some discipleship lessons 36 weeks, as a pastor, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead those pilot groups so that once we get those pilot groups going, at the end of 36 weeks, Lord willing, some people out of those pilot groups will go and start their own groups, and we will multiply that ministry. I am intentionally going to take that time to do that because I feel it's so important. We're going to have a group on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, a group on Wednesday night, and we're looking at a Wednesday morning, Wednesday afternoon, working in our schedule for a small group for me to lead through these 36 lessons on discipleship. Not everybody's going to want to do that. Not everybody's going to be led to do that. We're going to ask people to sign a covenant saying, I commit to this. You know what we found over the years in ministry? That when we have a study that's 12 weeks or 15, 16 weeks, at about week eight, attendance drops. You might start with 15 people and you get to week eight and you'll have six or eight. And you get to week 10 and you have five and you get to week... 12, and maybe you've got four. That's not what this is going to be. This is going to be people who count the cost and say, I, I want to be in for the long haul. There are going to be daily uh, devotionals that you have to do in the workbook. There will be scripture memory, a verse to memorize every week. There will be accountability with the small group. And I'm asking you to pray about that, to be a part of that, to sign up. I think probably, I hope I'm a good enough preacher where I could have got us all motivated today and put a sign-up sheet out there in the floor and I could get a bunch of names. I hope, I hope I could make that happen, but I don't want to do that. I want you to go home and pray about this. I want this to be something God's Holy Spirit says to you. This is something you need to be committed to before you sign on the dotted line and make it not just a commitment to the pastor, but a commitment to a small group. Multiplication, that's how we're going to intentionally have a disciple-making church. 
I read about a first grade teacher in, Dal- in Dallas area. And first day of school, a little boy named Ryan got to be lunchtime. And Ryan starts packing up all his stuff in his backpack, heading to the door to go home. Because he just, you know, kindergarten, they get to go home at noon. So he's in first grade, and the teacher says, Ryan, what are you doing? He said, I'm going home. She said, no, we don't go home in first grade. This is just lunchtime. You have to stay the whole day. And he thought about that, and he looked at her like, really? And she said he put his hands on his hips and looked at her and said, who on earth signed me up for this program? I do not want you to get committed to this program and get two or three or four or six weeks in it and say, who signed me up for this? I want God's Holy Spirit to stir your heart, to speak to you about this commitment to be a part of this discipleship group. It's a daily thing. It's a long haul, 36 weeks. Say, Pastor, people won't stay for 36 weeks. Some will. I use the analogy at the 8.30 service about a $1,000 bill and somebody corrected me afterwards and said, Pastor, that won't work. You need to change the analogy. So I'm going to change it, all right, because the math works. Suppose the Lord asks you to give your life to him and so you reach into your wallet and you pull out a $10,000 bill. I don't know if there's such a thing. And you hand it to the Lord and say, Lord, there's my life. I give you my life. I'm sold out. I'm surrendered completely. And the the Lord takes the $10,000 to the bank and he changes it for quarters and brings it back to you and gives you $10,000 worth of quarters and says, now, you give me back those quarters one a day. That's how you give your life to Christ. Yes, there is that ultimate surrender where you surrender to his lordship. As we were talking about with our small group today, it's a a blank sheet of paper that you sign and say, Lord, here, you fill in the details. That's the contract. And he says, daily, I want you to live your life in obedience to me. That's what discipleship is. It's not a flash in the pan, one time, hallelujah. I had an experience. As my pastor used to say, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. A daily commitment. Back in the 1950s, Parker Brothers came out with a board game, and it says a little bit about the 1950s culture that I grew up in, and it was called Going to Jerusalem. You started in Bethlehem, and you had little little pieces to move, just like a Monopoly game, except instead of a little top hat and a little dog and whatever else, it's been a while since I played Monopoly, you were given a little plastic disciple, and he had, a, he had sandals and a robe and a staff, and And you roll the dice and you got to move your disciple from Bethlehem to the next town. And you went around the Holy Land. And when you landed on a square, they'd ask you a question. They gave you a little black New Testament. Parker Brothers, can you believe this? You open it up and you read the answer, find the answer in your New Testament. You got to move your way toward Jerusalem. If you were lucky with the roll of the dice, you got to skip a bunch of questions and end up right at the triumphal entry. Went to Capernaum and went to the Sea of Galilee and went to Bethany, all these places on the way to Jerusalem. But but the interesting thing about that game is you get to Jerusalem and that's it. There's no crucifixion in the game. Why? It's not a very happy ending, is it? I think a lot of us see the Christian life that way. We forget the, the hard part of it. We forget the cross. 
See, the cross is not only the place where Jesus died for us, it is also a symbol that we die daily. It's a picture, as Jesus says, of of you taking up that obedience and that submission to his lordship, moment by moment, day by day. Our mandate is to make disciples. The methodology is people to people. The model he gave us is to multiply our ministry. That's what we're trying to do. Let's pray together.